Good morning and welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. It's great to see you in worship. We've been going through a series uh, called Christ Our Center, looking at the epistle uh, to the Colossian church. And so we've been reevaluating what does it mean to live our lives with Jesus Christ at the center of our individual lives, of our families, of our church. What would it mean if we really believed that and acted that out? And this morning, we're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Follow along in your bulletin with me. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by hands, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood Against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you, we worship you for your victory, your triumphing over all of our enemies in the cross. Lord, as we look at this passage, would you remind us of this? Would you see that it is not by our, help us to see it's not by our strength, our own merit, our own reasoning, our own power that we encounter you, that we come to faith, that we remain with you, but it is all through your power. It is in him, in Jesus, that we have our standing, that we have our fullness, that we have our victory. Father, I pray that this would be clear, that you would draw us wherever we are in our spiritual process this morning, outside of the faith, inside of the faith for many years, struggling whether we can continue to believe. Would you meet us? Would you let us encounter the gospel in all of its beauty and all of its power? And Would you let us encounter the one at the center of the gospel story, Jesus Christ? And we pray in his name. Amen. Sometimes even summer blockbuster movies can have something worth thinking about. They can surprise you with their depth and maybe even a bit of social commentary thrown in. In X-Men 2, in between the explosions and the mutant fights, you see the leaders of the two opposing forces, Charles Xavier and Magneto, both reading the same book. Does anyone know what book that was? It wasn't the Bible but The Once and Future King by T.H. White. Now, if you know the story, Arthur uses the might of the crown to bring medieval England into a place governed by justice rather than brute force. But the king must use brute force, the power of the sword, in order to do so. Force limits force, in other words. Now, Professor Xavier, the good guy, the protagonist, the leader of The X-Men uses his mutants in order to keep order and justice in place. But Magneto, the bad guy, the villain, is suspicious of using this kind 
of power, believing that even Charles Xavier is corruptible by the temptation of power. And he interprets the once and future king to be saying that Arthur's kingdom eventually collapsed in on itself, and ultimately he was unable to wield Excalibur for good alone. Now, one movie critic I read takes on Magneto's suspicion of of, uh, justice and goodness being ensured by power. He says, no one's innate goodness can stand underneath the temptations of power. It wasn't enough for Xavier nor Arthur, who eventually cast Excalibur back into the Lady of the Lake. It wasn't enough for Caesar or Marcus Aurelius or Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or Alexander. Humanity will continue to evolve technologically, politically, perhaps biologically, but evolution can only confer power and never bring justice. For that, we would need a king who is just in and of himself, whose mind is complete and whose body is impervious to the corrupting influence of this world. It seems nobody has loosed the sword from its stone yet, or if so, history has failed to take notice. Now, I don't know what the spiritual commitments, the faith commitments are of this commentator, but he is zeroing in on a very central part of our passage this morning, asking, what if the sword has been loosed from the stone And though history took notice of Jesus, perhaps we didn't quite grasp what he was doing, the manner of his victory, because we are so compelled and attracted to power, to dominance, to victory through brute force, through the sword that we perhaps missed. We caught Jesus, but we missed exactly what he was doing on the cross. What if victory was achieved, but it was in exactly the opposite way than we think. The Apostle Paul loves to talk about the paradox of the cross, and he loves to talk about how the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. We're going to look at this passage from two perspectives. In him, you have victory, and in him, you have fullness. First of all, the victory. That in the cross, what distinguishes Christianity from all other approaches to God is that God's weakness overcomes human strength. That God's incarnation and death is what swallows up injustice and violence and oppression. And in the person of his son, Jesus, God is bowing to the very worst of human evil in order to destroy it in order to absorb it, in order to overcome it. He is bowing to the worst of human power. Now, the ancient world knew how to celebrate a military victory. In the Roman world, if you conquered another army, another country, you would take the spoils of war back to your hometown, back to the home country. You'd bring the gold and the horses and the chariots and anything else you could carry back home. And you would walk through the middle of the town and everyone would celebrate. Look how powerful we are. Look at what our armies have accomplished. Look at all that we had to enjoy because of the brute force that we were able to exploit and use on this other nation. And then at the very end of that parade, what would they do? They would bring the king of that conquered nation through the street, parading him as if, say, as if to say, We have won. We are more powerful than this this person, and to shame him publicly. And then at the very end of the celebration, what they would do 
would, they, would, would be that they would execute that king in a public display to corral the psychological power of the country, to say, look how great and mighty we were. Now, a commentator who knows a good deal about the ancient Roman world said that when the Romans executed Jesus, this is more or less what they were trying to accomplish. Only Jesus wasn't worth bringing back to Rome. He was a nobody. He was a barbarian. He was just a religious teacher. Why parade him back to Rome? Let's just execute him here. And we can show how our force, our power, our reach is so far Now, anyone with a typical understanding of the first century world and warfare would think the rulers and authorities have won. They have stripped him naked, stripped him of his power. They have celebrated a public triumph over him. Now, blink, rub your eyes, throw the cobwebs off, and think for just a moment and hear what Paul is saying. Because he is saying that in Jesus' death that God was defeating the powers and authorities, that he was holding them up for public shame and public display, that the cross was a triumph over the principalities and the power. When King Arthur pulls the sword from the stone, it's not because he's the strongest man in the kingdom. It's not because he's had these great military victories. When he pulls the sword out of the stone, he is basically demonstrating that he is the anointed one. He's the true king. No one else could pull the sword out because they weren't the true king. But Arthur can because he's been anointed king of England. When the powers had done their worst to Jesus, crucifying him, God himself on the cross, on trumped-up charges of blasphemy and treason and rebellion, they overreached. He was neither, but what he was was he was the rightful king. He was the anointed one. He was the one that the world was waiting for. Now, why am I telling you this? Why is it important to understand the context of what was happening, not only on the cross, but in the context of the surrounding world? Why did Paul, why did God choose to do this through a cross, through a great defeat? Well, it means a number of things. Two things stand out here. He says that he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He's using legal language here to talk about the demands of the law, the demands of Torah, that which was expected of God's people, that God laid out this elaborate set of rules and obligations that Israel was to follow. And then what does Israel do? Now, we want more. We're going to write more rules because if you really are true, truly interested in following God, not only do you follow the Ten Commandments and everything that's in the Bible, but you follow this even more expansive list of rules, then we'll be presentable to God. If we can just follow this list, if we can climb up this ladder of law, then we'll be presentable to God. He will be proud of us. He will accept us into his throne room, into his kingdom. And God says, no, no, no. The law was expansive to get to the point that you can't do that. It was so exacting in its nature and so overreaching, so far-reaching, that is, to say you can't get to God on your own work. You cannot make yourself presentable to God. 
It was a burden far too heavy to carry. But if you'll call on me, I will carry it for you, God says. This has always been the hope of the Old Testament, that one day, one day, Messiah would come. One day, the true anointed king that can pull the sword out of the stone will come, that he will be anointed king over Israel. He will carry the burdens of the law. He will fulfill its demands so that it no longer curses you. It no longer is something that keeps you from God, but because he has fulfilled it, because he has canceled your legal indebtedness, you yourself can walk into the presence of God. Paul says in Jesus, your legal indebtedness has been paid. Your accuser has been nailed to the cross. I have paid your debt. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is my victory is your victory. Secondly, not only does he cancel the charge of our legal indebtedness, but he has disarmed the powers and the authorities. It says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. In his cross, not only the law, but everything that makes a claim on your life is overthrown. Everything that would exclude you from the presence of God, everything that would say you cannot approach God is now done away with. Everything that used to say you are unworthy, what Jesus has done in his victory has made you victorious if you are in him. He has made you presentable to God that you can come into the presence of God himself because of what Jesus has done. Anything that would exclude you from the love of God, Jesus says, I have defeated at my cross, and I now include you forever. Even death itself is overcome. That the fear of humanity, eternal separation from God, is now put to an end if you are in him. In him, he talks about the cross. He talks about Jesus' victory because if you are in him, Jesus' victory is your victory. In him, you have victory. In him, you also have fullness. Now, when Jack Nicholas was the greatest golfer in the world, he had this very kind of crazy habit of practice, and that is between the seasons, he would set his clubs down, and he would go on vacation. He wouldn't pick up a club. He wouldn't go on a golf course for four months, as long as he could during the season. And then right before the season started, he would go down to Florida and visit his coach, Jack Grout, and he would say, Mr. Grout, would you teach me how to play golf? And Mr. Grout would say, okay, Jack, Jack Nicholas, greatest player in the world, here's how you hold a club. Here's how you stand over the ball. Here's how you place your feet. They would start from the very beginning, He had won majors and championships and all of these tournaments, and yet, what does Jack Nicklaus do? Mr. Grout, would you teach me to play golf? Over and over in his letters, Paul reminds his readers of the basics, the very fundamentals of the faith, what is true of them in Jesus. It's as if all of the early churches had amnesia. I know I've forgotten this before. And so what does Paul do? He does exactly what the Old Testament writers did, exactly what God did in the Old Testament. Whenever Israel would wander off, he would say to Moses or to the other leader, leaders, bring them to me. Bring them so that they can hear the story again. Bring them to worship so that they can be told who they are again. You are Israel. You are God's anointed people. You are loved and embraced in me. Let, let's tell them the story again. 
And that's exactly what Paul is doing. The Colossian church is being attacked from a number of different directions, and we're not entirely sure what the threats are. But they're being attacked. The very nature of the gospel, what they originally believed, is now in jeopardy. And Paul is saying, here is what you're to believe. Here's how you hold the club. Here's how you hold your head. Here's where you put your feet. Remember the basics. Remember the fundamentals. Remember this remarkable story that you have been embraced by a healing, liberating, loving God who went to the cross for you. That's your story. In the front of your bulletin, I quoted the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, and I know I've used this quote before, but he says, if I, I can only answer the question of what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of. Paul lists six in hymns or with hymns. Six of them, and what he is doing is he is placing the Colossian church in the story of Jesus. That this isn't something that's happening to someone else, Colossians, in town. This is something that's happened to you, that you have been adopted into the story. Remember the story. Remember the basics. Remember you are in Christ. Before you forget, let's review three things, and then we'll be done. The basics are always the basics. In verse 6, which we didn't read previous, So then, just as you received God, just as you received Christ Jesus our Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Remember the basics. Here's how you hold the club. Here's how you backswing. Here's how you keep your head still. There were other systems of thought that were trying to uproot the gospel's hold in Colossae. There were other approaches to God that were vying for allegiance. And it seems from what we know of these things is that they weren't seeking to dispose of Jesus altogether. They were simply seeking to supplement, to augment. They were coming to the Colossian church and saying, look, you love Jesus, we love Jesus too. But if you're really serious, if you really love Jesus, that you will either give up something or take up something. You'll give up something to show your seriousness or you'll take up something. And we get a hint of it in the passage that we're not going to look at in our study, but which follows our passage, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You love Jesus? Great. We love Jesus, too. If you really love him, you'll give up something or you'll take up something. To be really spiritual, you must give up something. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's drink. Maybe it's certain kinds of books or movies. Maybe it's certain kinds of friends, certain kinds of work. Until you give these things up, you can't be serious about Jesus. You don't really know him. Or maybe you, you must take up something. Religious festivals, celebrations, Sabbath observances. That sounds kind of strange to our ears. What is he talking about? 
if you really love Jesus, you must take up this particular political cause or perspective. You must take up this particular spiritual regimen, this form of worship, this parenting philosophy, this guru, this pastor, this book. But if you really love Jesus, you'll adopt this philosophy. And what Paul says is then all of this, you're missing the point. That there may be some good things that you could give up or you take up, but they're not Jesus. And insofar as you see them as central to your spirituality, as Jesus as somehow minimized by these things, that you can only have Jesus, that other people can only have Jesus if they adopt these certain things to get, get rid of, to give up or take up, then they have become an idol. They have become a distraction. They may have a sense of wisdom, an appearance of wisdom, but they are worthless, Paul says. He says, you're missing the point. These regulations have an appearance of wisdom, but if you already have Jesus, the Messiah, you don't need any other system, any other thing to complete you. You have fullness. Your spiritual problem, you see, friends, is far more fundamental than any system of conduct could ever address. And Jesus, as the spiritual answer, is far more adequate than any system of religiosity could approach. The basics are always the basics. In him, you have not partiality, not a little help, but you have fullness. This very same word, that God dwells in Jesus with fullness. In him, in Jesus, you have fullness. The basics are always the basics. And the enemy is always the enemy. Verse 11, in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. One common controversy in the early church, which is understandable given the context, is the relevance of Jewish customs for the Christian life. Should Christians, should Gentiles have to be circumcised? Should they have to abide by the Old Testament ceremonial law? And many would say yes, because the Christian faith is rooted in circumcision. This has been the way that we've marked out the covenant people for 2,000 years. Why would we jettison that now? Why would we lose a, a sign for our children? Many of you may know that our own Lindsay Hall has started an organization business. And given that Katie and I are not the most organized people in the, in the world, uh, we hired her the other day. And so she came over and started pulling stuff out, and now our house looks like a total wreck. Um, we paid her to come organize, and it looks like a total wreck. She's coming back, by the way. But so I'm sitting in my office, and they keep moving these huge boxes filled with CDs. They're filled with compact discs, and Katie was like, what are all these compact discs? What are these CDs doing in these boxes? There's like seven or 800 of them, not boxes, but CDs. Now, they're down, packed in our basement because I never use them. They used to be a great source of pleasure, maybe even pride, because I had so many. And I would I organized them categorically and then alphabetically. And I always forced Katie to keep them in a fairly prominent place because they're great conversation starters. People would come over and talk about music, and it would be a great way to kind of get to know the person. Now, what's happened since I spent all of that money and all of those years collecting seven or 800 CDs? 
well, I've got a huge hard drive now. And so now all of my CDs reside on that hard drive in full CD quality. Now, the only use for those CDs anymore is to basically stay compliant with copyright laws. The reason that I bought them has been dismissed because I listen to all of my music through my computer, on the hard drive, or through streaming. The purpose for which I bought those CDs has passed. They are a remnant. CDs are a remnant of a bygone era, at least as far as my musical tastes are concerned. Now, Paul tells them, the Colossian church, that the purpose for which you were circumcised is now past. It's a bygone era. What it signified is beautiful and relevant and necessary, but it's been replaced by something else. And he says that thing is baptism. That you have been already been circumcised in all of the ways that really matters. That you have been baptized into the kingdom of the new Lord, into the kingdom of Jesus, and raised with him through God's power. Unlike circumcision, where there's a putting off of a small piece of flesh, in baptism there's a putting off of an entire way of life. The old world is being put off. The old self is being put off. The old way of life is being put off. And it means dying to that old world and being born again to the new one. It means taking allegiance to the old to the new king. Now think with me for a minute. I said the enemy is always the enemy. If Jesus is the center of this new world, who or what was at the center of the old world? Now the Sunday school answer would be the devil, right? It's Satan. But and that's true in other places of scripture that that Satan, that devil, the devil is embodied evil, that he is an enemy. But in this passage the enemy is you, not Satan, but you and me, that we are our own worst enemies. He says that what is being put off in baptism, the new circumcision, what is it? It is your whole self ruled by the flesh. That's what was put off. I can only answer the question of what am I to do if I know the previous answer to the, the, answer to the previous question What story or stories do I find myself a part of? If you're a Christian this morning, your story is his story. That in baptism you have been adopted into his story. That you have taken allegiance in your baptism to a new king. It's no longer you, but it's Jesus. That he is the king of this new world, of this new kingdom. And that you have been adopted into that story. In the old regime, you were on the throne, or at least so you thought. But the sign of your new life is now your baptism, that you're under his lordship, his kingship. The enemy is any time we forget that story and we begin reinserting ourselves at the center, that we begin reasserting our agenda at the center of the story and saying, this is what I live by. I live by my own plans, my own purposes, my own agenda. No. Jesus says, I am your Lord, and I have adopted you into my story. And in my story, there is grace, there is mercy, there is joy everlasting. Yes, you have to cut off your old self, but it's something that is liberating, not enslaving. 
The basics are always the basics. The enemy is always the enemy. And the source is always the source. We get baptized. We come to faith. We say, I want to be part of this story. I'm going to live my life by this story, by underneath the rule of this king. And then life happens. (laughs) The self begins to reinsert itself into the story, at the center of the story. As John Calvin says in our book of the month, everyone flatters himself and carries in his breast a kingdom. We want to be the cause of our own salvation. We want to flatter ourselves with our good works, with our worthiness, with what we've accomplished. We want to say, God, look at what I have done. Yes, thank you for Jesus, but I've got to augment that. I've got to supplement that by this system, by this regimen, by all of the good things that I do. We want to be the cause. And some of us are very good at this. We build up a wall, we build up a sense of safety by all of the good things that we do, by our conduct, by our devotions, by our voting, whatever it may be. Some of us are very good, and it leads to self-righteousness. Some of us are terrible at it. We're not very good. We urgently want to run and do something. We want to get something right so that we can be safe. And it leads to despair. And Jesus says, let me be your center. Don't augment in either direction, but let me. Paul screams, no. Don't run, don't walk, don't move. Don't just do something, stand there. Stay right where you are. That's the only safe place. And what is that safe place? In conclusion, that safe place is in him. It's in his victory and in his fullness. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Jesus Christ is full of God. That in Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells. And so that when you are put in union with him, his fullness dwells in you. His record, his life, everything that is true of him becomes true now of you in the way that Jesus looks at you, in the way that God sees you. You need not be filled with anything or anyone else. This having been brought is what they call a perfect passive participle. It's an ongoing condition that results from a past action. You have been brought to fullness. The Christian is already filled with Christ. And since Christ is the place where God dwells, you are safe. You need to augment it with nothing else. God has always dwelled with his people through physical signs and physical places. One is the Lord's Supper. One is baptism. And we see in the Old Testament that God dwells with his people through the tablets of the law. I am present among you, Israel, through this law that's inscribed on stone. I am present among you, Israel, through the fire that guides them around the desert, through the manna that comes to feed them, through the burning bush, through all of these physical things. And finally, the holy of holies, that I am with you, I am tabernacling with you in your presence. But that one holy place is somewhere that no one can go except the high priest. And the high priest wears a belt and a ro- with a rope attached to it because he may die. He may go into the presence and die, and they'll have to drag him out for fear of going in there themselves. But in Jesus, the fullness 
dwells. The Holy of Holies has come to you. If you are in union with him, then you have all of his benefits. You have perfection. You don't need to augment or supplement with any system and don't let anyone lead you astray with any other thing that is in contrast to the gospel. God has brought the Holy of Holies in the person of Jesus to you. Would you receive that, take hold of it for the first time or again? Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would remind us that in Christ you are full and that we thus are filled if we are in union with him. Lord, I pray that if we have been following you many years, that we seem to have moved beyond the basics, would you remind us that the basics are always relevant, that you would remind us that the ABCs of Christianity are the A to Z. Lord, I pray that for those of us that may be asking big questions this morning, wondering if we could become a follower of Christ, I pray that you would remind us that you hold out for us not a new slavery, but, Father, a liberation, a freedom, a freedom that comes only in your grace, only in your abiding presence. We pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper that you would feed us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.